welcome to Blood, Sweat and Deers. Uh, it's been quite a while since we've done a podcast. Uh, this is podcast number six. And I'm really fortunate to have as our guest tonight, uh, Mark Taroski, uh, artisan knife maker from um, Suffolk. Uh, Mark, we've met a couple of times. Once when I came yeah. to the workshop and once when we stalked a few weeks back. Um, how are you? Very well. Yeah, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. We're getting back to some form of normality. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I'm not into football, but it's a big night for football. By the time this goes out, we will either be um, doing very well within the football or we'll be knocked out by the Germans. But um, yeah, we'll right. see. Yep. But, uh, loving the backdrop. It's a lot better than mine, that workshop is, isn't it? It looks so oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Borrowed that, have you? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, how's business? Uh, yeah, good. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Taking on. How have you got on throughout the uh, the pandemic with business? Has that helped you expand because people are at home spending money or is it, how's it been? I, I don't really have anything to go by because uh, I, I basically started professionally uh, as we were going into lockdown, basically. Um, so it's all I've known as a, as a business. Really? So yeah. you started in 2014, if I remember. Yep, yep, about That's then, when yeah. you and how did you start? How did you get into knife making the craft that it is? Um, in its most basic form, really, it was just um rehandling other knives. Um I think I think the the, the, the catalyst was seeing um dear Ray Mears on the telly box. Yep. Um and he, he he handled a knife basically in one of his programs. So he had a he had a little knife made up by a blacksmith, and he put the handle on it, and it sort of clicked, I suppose, then that uh, how accessible it was. You know, before then it seemed like a bit of a dark art. Um, you know, something you have to go and learn or or something. But there there he is, uh, just you know making up a, a handle as he goes on the telly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I went out to the shed and I had a, one of these Mora knives with the, you know, the plastic mold. Yeah, I, 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 like, I used them for years. I always like orange, remember, and Mora did oh, yeah. handled yeah. Mora knife. Always, they were a reasonable price. If you lost them, you weren't going to get upset about it. And they did an orange or uh, an orange end to one of them. And I used to, I used to buy them by the box, to be honest. And a lot of the lads that we trained in the old days, they used to borrow uh, the, the more and I was, and then the bar one of us for six or seven quid, you know. Uh, yeah. But anyway, sorry, yeah, the more and I. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not knocking a more and I in any <laughs> way. They're, they're, they're great for, for their price and what they do. Um, so I took the lump hammer to it and smashed it off, which was actually quite a bit of a task. Um, they're quite well made, actually. Well, the old ones were anyway. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then. Um, stuck my own wooden handle on it basically and yeah. just used what tools I had which at that time was one old rasp and some really cheap sandpaper um and that that was it that was it really yeah and and that's where the love came yeah it's just having having a finished well a, a loose loose term finished product yeah at the end of it that yeah, yeah, fair play. You know, I didn't have anything to do with the blade. Yeah. Um, but I turned that into a knife, which is, yeah. you know, a blade and a handle is yeah, a yeah. knife. Um, so, yeah, there's it, definitely like a satisfaction which came from it. 
yeah. yeah. So, so what were you doing then? What were you working as then? And then how did it go from being um, a, a an idea to a hobby to then um, the lovely workshop that I saw near Bury St. Edmunds? Uh, you've got all the kit and you're turning out the incredible pieces of workmanship that you are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, back then, uh, I was actually living down in Devon uh, for a few years uh, with my now wife. Um, we moved down there for her, really, for work. She got a job uh, in Plymouth. Yeah. Um, and I I was a freelance tree surgeon and, you know, tree worker, groundsman. Um, so it was easy for me because I, th- those are transferable skills that you can take yes. anywhere around the country. Yeah. Um, so, so while we were down there, that's what I was doing as a, a subcontracted tree surgeon, um, yeah. uh, which was great because I had, you know, obviously an inexhaustible supply of wood. Uh, uh, but it meant I wasn't that, um, that, that good when we went to do firewood because every other log, I you know, had to stop yeah. and have a look. Well, that's a nice piece of beach. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And see if it had any, you know, spalting or any character in it. Do, do you know, I was, uh, years ago, I, um, and it is years ago, uh, it, so it must have been in probably the 90s, I sent away to a woman who had, did a kit on um, carving your own decoy. And you got this oh, yeah. Of, yeah, block, I think it was... I think it was birch, actually, the wood that you got, because it's quite easy to whittle. And this, and uh, you got this kit and a rough diagram and a few tools and everything with it. And I think it was maybe even bought me as a birthday. And I had this idea because in those days I was out really into my duck shooting and going up on the foreshore with a group of keeper mates. And um, so I had this idea to craft my own decoy. And it's still... It's still an idea. And on that yeah. bookshelf is a two or three, you know, American decoy books. Never right. did it. But, but any time I see a block of wood, right, I, think, yeah, yeah, I always yeah. think, oh, do you know, that's like, that would make a de- good decoy, but I still haven't <laughs> done it. Probably yeah. never will, but it, it was a thought that counted. But anyway, yes, so carry yeah, on. Yeah. You've got these bits of wood. Uh, uh, where were we? Yeah, yeah. so that, that was what I was doing at the time. Yeah. Uh, tree surgery. Um we decided just uh, organically that that we sort of had our time down in Devon. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, this is as we were sort of planning to get married and it just felt like we wanted to move back um, to Suffolk, which is where we were both from originally. Yeah. Um, so when we moved back, um, I started working more in grounds care um sort of probably 50 50 grounds care and tree work but more for myself uh, so i started up more as my own company my own business yeah um again loose term because it was basically me and then um, <laughs> yeah. i roped in someone every now and again um yeah. uh, but that sort of gave me the flexibility to explore other avenues uh mm-hmm. one of which being uh, a bit more knife making on the side uh, where we were living at the time had access to quite a nice uh, empty but quite a nice workshop space. Um, so purely as a hobby, uh, I started getting more into the knife making again at the time. It was buying in pre-made, uh, pre-made knives yeah. And, and, yeah. and sticking handles on, um, which, you know, 
it, obviously as a professional, that's that that you you did half the job, I suppose. Um, so I couldn't call myself a knife maker at the time. Yeah, but it yeah. gives you like I was able to focus on those aspects of knife making. Yeah, like, and perfect. Exactly. Yeah, like yeah. how to finish wood. You know, uh, back then I was using like leather uh, to add little spaces and things. So like yeah. how how to finish leather, you know, to a, to a nice standard. Um, what to do, but more, more importantly, like what not to do. Yeah. Like yeah. what ruins a good yeah. handle. Yeah. Uh, which it's is quite in interesting because a few weeks back we were in the Birmingham Gun Quarter and we were with a guy who, um, oh, a fantastic guy, Malcolm Crookston, uh, and, and over the door it says stocker, so piece of wood and everything, but he obviously yeah. he's a um, little bit older than me, should have retired, but still um, um, doing his craft there. And, you know, like he started off as a stocker, so that would have been really all about the wood, wouldn't it? You know, so he would have yeah, yeah, yeah. the wood as an apprentice and through his age, and then that obviously you have to then fix that to the metal and that brings in the gun side. And now Malcolm does everything, of course. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, but it would be an interesting, sort of how you've done that as well, is you kind of started it off and you were unashamedly said to me when I came over, I'm the YouTube generation. So I thought, is he a, a craft apprentice? Has he done this? Has he done But you've actually took yourself taught, aren't you? And it's driven by passion and interest and everything. And uh, yeah. I think it's amazing. You know, I've, I've got a couple of your knives um, and um, you can't help, but when you actually look at it, the detail, uh, the smaller detail, you know, but, but actually the, the blade and how the handle fits in your hand that you really have, you know, um, took it yourself and made it your own, if you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. not the knife, but you're crafting your skill. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, I think I think obviously the YouTube thing is you know a pinch of salt, yeah. and it it sounds like I've got it completely uh, wrong. Well, no, no, no. It, it's I think it's just important that um, it, that makes it perhaps sound easy. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if you go onto YouTube and search how to make a knife, uh, you know, there's a thousand different videos, and not everyone is particularly correct. Yeah or applicable to what you're doing how you want to do it um so you, you you're just you're fishing you know for like little snippets of information you've still got uh, to turn that you've still got to yeah. turn that film into practical skill which is the yeah 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 it could be a yeah. grolicking video couldn't it exactly yeah yeah show you how to do it all and everything but then actually yeah. turning that into a a good field grolic you know what i mean or you know in your case a you know a an incredible knife it, it, it's, it's easier said than done isn't it you know yeah so you just you know, like I say you, you're taking snippets of the information that uh, has sparked something for you that you know yeah. that you think that you could take forward uh, and then that's where the, the real work begins I suppose and that you have to you know do actual research and development uh, and on that idea and put it into practice um, yeah so <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I, bet, I bet that was when you started realizing I need this and I need that and I need a bit more than me chainsaw and a, <laughs> and, uh, and and some chisels and some sandpaper I bet you need to so like yeah it gets to a point where it gets to the point where you have to decide which way you're going with this and it, at the same time it was exactly the same for my 
to take this up a level and join, you know, do I want to spend 10,000 pounds, say, on a chipper and another 10,000 pounds on a vehicle to ramp up that business? Yep. Do I want to spend the equivalent money on the knife making? And because there's just certain things you just can't do without the, the proper equipment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or certainly not efficiently, you know, enough to make it, uh, worthwhile in terms of any sort of income yeah um so at some point you have to bite the bullet and decide you know what equipment you you need to go forwards yeah. what are you what are your key investments in in in, in that I, I think i was there you got a you got an oven hadn't you yeah that was a, is it an oven a kill yeah the, the the main two pieces of equipment in anyone's sort of any knife makers arsenal would be the the heat treatment and the the grinding yeah. shaping and like pretty pretty much universally across the knife making world that's a, a two by 72 inch belt uh grinder i mean it is it's effectively it's a liner shirt or a sander yeah um but for whatever reason us knife makers call it a, a grinder yeah and and yeah the heat treatment um so that'd be a heat treating kiln and like as a side companion to that, some sort of tempering oven. Yeah, which well. you've now all got in that workshop behind you, haven't you? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, so, and 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 once you got that, obviously, I bet your productivity went up more then, didn't it? Without you know, a bit more efficient then. Yeah, it that 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 is just like the turning point then of being a knife maker because you, yeah. you can't make a knife without heat treating it or no. even obviously the first the first stage would be shaping a piece of metal into a knife shape yeah um so up until then you're just relying on pre-made the pre-made hand uh, knife blanks yeah and you're just fitting that which, which you're buying in so so up in, so that is that is the turning point of of becoming you know a knife maker yeah from, from start to finish i mean obviously you can you can do it uh uh, in a different way, if you've got a forge, uh, a little propane forge or something where you, you know, you're heating up metal in that and then quenching it to harden it. Um, but for any sort of consistency, really, that you need to be investing in, you know, in this equipment to, to get consistent results. It really is like baking a cake, like recipes. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, plus or minus five degrees centigrade, uh, it makes a massive amount of difference to the end product. Yeah. So you need to you need to be able to trust trust yourself in the equipment that you you you're giving the customer what 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 they deserve really. Yeah. And from looking at your website now, you've established set patterns which are your Mark Zabrowski knife, haven't you? And um and and, and um you know a selection of different models that you prefer to make. Which how's how does that go? Um, with regards to say somebody wanted to order that, would they just look? I, I, I noticed when I first got to know you, there used to be quite a few knives uh, up for sale, but it seems um, following your Instagram, they kind of come and go, don't they, very quickly? So um, you can either buy one from the shop that you've got online, or yeah. you would possibly um, for the person who is investing in that. Um, uh, knife you'd want to make it bespoke and, and have a bit of a say in what the different finish the wood or or the shape of the blade would be wouldn't you yeah it, that's just been like an organic uh, progression really in the as, as more orders uh, have come in 
and my sort of wait list has increased. I, I can't really justify taking time off of that to make knives just to sell, you know, on, on the website to, to anyone. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I have to be fair to my customers that are waiting, you know. Yeah. Um, um, although obviously I control and it's like a self-imposed uh, waiting time you know I could say a year's time and I could give myself some leeway to make extras yeah uh, just stop the website but um, if someone's taken the time to contact me and and they want to you know invest their money on one of my products and I just want to get it out to them as timely as possible well you know which is my favorite and I'm just holding holding it up and showing for anybody on video uh, what it is but if you're listening um, you won't be able to see this, but it's a short, um, uh, that's your smallest of your knives, isn't it? And it's a yeah. pocket hunter, pocket stalker, pocket hunter that I, that I keep calling I the struggling. pocket stalker. And you can see, um, uh, Mark very kindly still got a bit of grolic on it. Mark. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> we do use our products. Uh, yeah, yeah. you can see, uh, our logo on there, which is very kind of you to put on. And also, on the other side, your logo. Can I just get that right? Yeah, there you go. Oh, it's back to front because it's on the. Uh, no, that's good. Cam, you can yeah. see it. But uh, how do you get that? How do you how do you get that into there? Is that engraved? How does that work? Uh, so I use uh, which is the 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 common and traditional way of doing it for knife makers, which is called electro etching. Yeah. Um, so you basically you use a stencil, which uh, electronically insulates or conducts certain areas, obviously your stencil design, uh, yes. that's conductive. Yeah. Um, and the rest of it is, is it's usually a, a vinyl type material. So that insulates it from the electric current. Uh, then you, you, you're using electricity and uh, a solution, an electrolyte solution yeah. to force, it basically like force rusts. Yep. But very quickly. So it eats away at the surface. Uh, so yep. you're left with an actual depression. Uh, you know, yeah, you run your fingernails across it and you can feel that it's catching. Yeah. And uh, the, for this one in particular, what I really like is this, um, well, I'm going to call it plastic plastic case that you've heat shrunk onto it. Yeah. Uh, fits it really snugly. And um, again, it just isn't attached to my belt. It really fits in the pocket on my uh, on my thigh um the merkel trousers a lot of the german trousers have that knife pocket already i'm so I'm blessed to have yeah, that yeah. and uh, and that just fits in perfectly and it's uh, well it's just become my go-to knife and i um i'm giving it some stick to me. <laughs> yeah good yeah that's what it's for really yeah it is it is and i designed that one you know as you say it hasn't got a belt loop obviously you, if you want it with a belt loop and yeah. I, I that's its most basic version yeah. Um, which is designed as a companion knife. Uh, so it's a companion knife to your main stalking knife. And you can use that little one for the heavy work. You know, if you want to go for your ribs on your roe deer and your munt jack, that would do it fine. And you can save your, yeah, and you can save your nice knife for, you know, for doing your growlicking and, and whatnot. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a great product. And um, and and which one do you... So that's my favourite. What you, you know, you're the actual knife maker. What's your favourite one, which is yours? Yeah. When you were out with us a few weeks ago, you had the um, Fin and Feather, which was... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Very well, slick I, and... Yeah. Uh, I can't... Yeah. Obviously, it's like choosing your favourite child. 
<laughs> not that I, I don't have any first-hand experience of that. But, um, yeah, I don't, I've got the fin and feather. Just I've got mine here. Just because it's... Um, I just find it a little bit more elegant and I've gone for like a gentleman's knife. Uh, yeah. You know, it's quite dainty, yeah. uh, long and thin. Um, and and to me, it's like the sort of knife that you would have seen around 100 years ago. Like yeah. it hasn't really aged. No. Uh, and that's, that's something that's always in the back of my mind, I suppose, is is how, how these knives will look, you know, in 100 years' time. What's the handle on that one? It's it's a white uh, handle for those. Who yeah, so this is um this is red deer. Is it red deer antler? Yeah, okay. it's been stabilised. So all the uh, all the inside, all the marrow type stuff you get inside has all been filled with resin. Yeah, uh, but they take a really nice high polish once you get through the uh, through the outer yeah. bark. They, they take a lovely polish. So yeah, I wouldn't be using that to take the arse out of a stag though. With it. it's far too nice. That is, I'd be using that knife for like cutting up um, this bresciola, this like little oh, yeah. I've been making. Yeah, onto a nice chopping board. Nice knife. Looks nice and impressive. This is yeah. the uh, this is the backside job. This one. <laughs> yeah, but what, but you know they're all stainless steel. Yeah, uh, all the handles are stabilized. Yeah. Uh, so apart from you know getting a little bit of tarnish on the copper perhaps and the brass um you know they're just they're just as practical as a as a synthetic handle when i wrote an article about this um a few months ago for sporting shooter and i i mentioned the stabilizing in that when you say just so for the listeners you know who are interested in this you stabilize wood you stabilize horn and bone so what you basically do you, you remove the the, the liquid that's in there and replace it with a resin. So it's, you know, um, it, it doesn't expand or crack under when it's getting wet and used. Yeah. Yeah. And basically any material that is like naturally porous, porous yeah, um, would act like a sponge. So um, if you have unstabilized wood and use that for a knife handle, uh, so certain woods are almost naturally stable, uh, like a desert ironwood is so dense that you basically can't stabilise it because you can't force any resin into it. Um, but we haven't, uh, we haven't got much desert ironwood in the Chilterns. No, <laughs> no, not anymore, no. But um, uh, so any, any, any naturally porous wood without stabilisation, even humidity from the air, you know, would get drawn into it. And that's why you see a lot of, like, a lot of the knives that you would have had as a child, if you still got them, uh, with unstabilized woods, chances are from being even sitting in your drawer at home, yeah, uh, yeah. they would soak up moisture, and that's when yeah. they start to peel away. The yeah. handle material will start to peel away from. I the remember blade. it. I yeah. used to have one of those um, uh, folding knives with a rosewood handle and like the old traditional yeah, yeah. brass bolsters in it. Yeah, everyone's had one of those. I know they have. You know. And I, yeah. um, but I think with mine, one of the pieces fell off the side. I mean, yeah. it, it was just, I think I probably put it in the dishwasher years ago, but you know what I mean? But it which, which probably was my fault. But again, um, probably wasn't stabilised, probably made in China. And uh, yeah, it is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the stabilisation is you basically, yeah, you put it in a vacuum chamber, submerse it in a resin which sets under heat. So once 
you've uh, once you've sucked all the air bubbles out of the wood and replaced it with the resin. Yeah. Uh, that takes, you know, for the DIYer, like myself, I would include myself in that, is that that takes quite a long time. You know, literally a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I would leave it for a week under vacuum um, and then a week at ambient, you know, at ambient pressure just to make yeah. sure it's fully yeah. soaked in. Um, yeah, then you you wrap it in um, uh, uh, some aluminium foil and bung it in the in the normal sort of uh, oven, domestic oven. Yeah, and yeah. that that heat cures that next resin. To your, next to your pasty, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got to use the energy while it's there, <laughs> and you can't waste it. Which is which is the uh, is there a um, a material as uh, you know an organic material that's difficult to deal with you have to work with somebody think oh god somebody's asked me for i don't know walrus tusk or god knows what you know what i mean that that maybe there's a nightmare to stabilize or is it, are they all is it just it is what it is and yeah all- i mean they've all got their quirks definitely and you'll have to you have to treat them all individually um like you've got practical ones that are like practically awkward uh like antler because yep. obviously it, it's cylindrical so you've got no flat surfaces to work from yeah um you know you're buying you're buying a block of wood and it's perfectly right angles um and it's true uh so you just whiz it on the bandsaw and you've got two equal you know pieces of material but there's a lot of messing about uh with antler and again like bone and horn if you're doing it from the raw material just because you've got you've got no uh equal surface to work from initially um so there's yeah it's just messing about time yeah um, which obviously adds a bit of cost unfortunately but yeah, but, yeah. but i mean i mean the one i'm using and the uh the accompanying knife with it have got this um uh this g10 like, yeah g10 like a laminate um yeah. and i did when when you, when you only first sent it to me i did actually um Google the G10. It's actually, well, if you look at it, you can catch it in the light. It's like a, it's a material with it that's been soaked yeah, in. The yeah, yeah, like yeah. You can see the like, yeah. It's like woven, woven layers. Yeah. Of uh, well, the G10, the, the that's entirely synthetic. So you have like a synthetic woven fabric, uh, and lots of layers of that built up, sandwiched between resin. Yeah. So that's like 100% synthetic. And then you've got like a slightly more natural version of that called micarta. Yeah. Uh, which is the same theory, but you're using natural woven fabrics instead. Yeah. And then what you choose to do that with affects like the, the characteristics. Um, so you can use uh, a canvas micarta, which is obviously quite rough. So, so your layers uh, are a lot chunkier. And as you Come back, oh, There you are. The coarseness of that. I'm here. Am I here? Yeah. Good. I think uh, I think there's a, a Frisian walk uh, past your Wi-Fi. Uh, uh, right. Um, yeah, and the other end of the spectrum would be like a paper. So you can they literally use paper sandwiched up in lots of layers between resin, and that takes a very high gloss finish, which almost looks like a horn once it's once it's done. Wow. So, so lots of choice for handles, lots of choice yeah, for yeah, shapes, and uh, and uh, business is going well at the moment. So far, so good. That's awesome. Yeah. 
That's great. That's really great to hear from like 2,000 volts or seven years. You've progressed to that. And, you know, the workshop that we came to um, last year in the autumn when we could see each other um, yeah. was very impressive. Lovely, that lovely rural location. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think what I also liked um, was the, the, the box it was presented in and even down to your little logo. I mean, you explained to me at the time what the logo was, but that went back to your school days, didn't it, when you were doing potato pressings or something, was it? <laughs> yeah, almost. Uh, no, that, that just came from, um, it's, obviously, it's just a, a monogram of my, of my main initials. Yeah. It's just an M and a Z overlapping. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, like, like I said, that we, we were tasked at uh, middle school, I think, to come up with, um, come up with our signature you know that we wanted to use because at some point you have to decide you know you yeah. have to make some sort of squiggle on a, on a piece of paper and that's you somehow but um yeah i was obviously feeling quite artistic and i came up with this uh prince like monogram of my name uh but i wasn't allowed to keep that so <laughs> really good really interesting right let's move off from knife making because i was re really Really interesting, I'm sure for the listeners it was too. You, you you make all these knives. I know you like your field sports, but uh, what are you what what's, what are you into? What are you, are you are you a shooter? Are you a stalker? Are you both terrier man ferreter? What what what's, I know nothing about that other than you've been stalking with me. But do you what do you like? Yeah, mostly now now it's pretty much exclusively the deer uh, that I'm really interested in. Um, I think, like a lot of people, I progressed naturally uh, from shotgunning to rifle shooting. Yeah. Uh, just just because that's what most people do. You know, you apply for your your, your uh, shotgun certificate when you're 18, and, uh, and then you mess about for a few years doing some pigeon shooting and and beaters days, pheasants and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but my my main interest always was deer and deer stalking and uh, you know hunting um but oh. i actually only got my rifle certificate a couple of years ago yeah um for no other reason then it, i just didn't get around to doing it um and i wanted to do my dsc1 and all that sort of stuff and it, uh just because of work and, and life in general i just didn't get around to doing it no um because i've always been like really passionate about it it felt like I was in training for all of that time. You know, uh, yeah. I got all the books, you know, and, and uh, th you know, things on TV were driven by my love of, uh, you know, the countryside and deer. So were you going, out, were you going out with a friend then uh, who was into that and had got some ground? Is that how you got into it? Um, no, not really. Um Obviously, I'm a bit of an adult onset hunter. You know, it came to me, you know, quite late, even though the interest was there. Yeah. Uh, but there, there was no one really in my uh, like immediate family or yeah. my immediate surroundings that were really into it. Um, I, I would say, like, my childhood was fairly conventional. Like, we grew up on the edge of a housing estate, like, yeah. near the fields. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and it's almost like you're the weird one, you know, and the quirky one at the family, and 
uh, you know, they, obviously they came to the point where I had to ask my mother if, if she'd be right with me applying for my shotgun certificate, you know, and we lived on this how you know, albeit fairly nice housing estate, and yeah. you know, you, you feel a bit odd. Yeah, I, um, I can completely relate to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's difficult, and yeah, but you just have to, um, you just have to make the opportunities yourself. Yeah, um, and and I think the main, well, at college I studied countryside management. Um, so that's basically like countryside rangering skills. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little, it's quite broad and it's a little bit of everything. Um, and obviously that's where I got my chainsaw experience to then go on and do tree surgery. Yeah. Um, but, but from that we did, uh, we had to do a day's work experience uh, one day per week. And I did mine with the National Trust, uh, a, lo- a local estate to, to Bury, to Bury St Edmunds. Um, but they've got a lot of woodland and they had um, uh, they had a volunteer deer stalking team yep. there. Um, so I was, I was volunteering with the rangers as they were at the time. Uh, unfortunately, the National Trust has changed a lot since then and um, they're barely rangers anymore. But um, I was with them and uh, very like very wanting to go and see what all this deer stalking was about because you know back then I had the passion um and the want to do it but you you just have to seek out these opportunities yourself um you know so I I sort of went and started talking to the deer stalkers there um and that was my first experience of actually going out uh deer stalking and um it was like it wasn't the best experience um uh i was very ill prepared for the early morning cold yeah uh, <laughs> um but um yeah that was my, my best experience it didn't put me off in any way no but it was just uh, it was just a long time since then i was able to to, to take it further really yeah, it's funny you um, say that. You just, I'm, I'm comparing myself and how I got into shooting. Yeah, and I, I was, I was a lad working on a pig farm. That, um, because of circumstances, I ended up befriending uh, the gamekeeper and was really interested. It kind of suddenly I met somebody who, from a kid, I was always out bird nesting and. Uh, um they can't go back in time and do you for this can you but i was always out down looking no, for no, stuff yeah. like that you know and hawks and owls and all that you know and then i met this guy who was like uh you know older but similar to me and he had this you know his incredible knowledgeable um countryman a guy called pete cromack uh he's retired now but mm-hmm. he he really ignited everything in me my family weren't into field sports or yeah, anything, yeah. you know what I mean I, the nearest I got to that was me you know me my granddad having cockerels hung up in the coal shed and and, and keeping pigeons for food as well you know what I mean it's it was yeah so I kind of I, I kind of knew about that I lived in a village you know it was a farming community and all that and I I used to help this gamekeeper used to walk up there and uh, and he was the guy that kind of prompted me to apply for my shotgun as soon as I could and was you know very diligent on you know, training me with that, you know, I can remember the times he wouldn't let me um, even have cartridges in it. I just had to carry it and break it over fences and stuff like that. And 
yeah. yeah. Cuff around the ear hole was a reminder that I was doing something wrong or he wouldn't let me use it for a couple of weeks. And then I kind of used to help him. And then like on a Sunday afternoon, I'd get let to do something like pigeon shooting or rabbiting or as I walked back across the fields to Marvelly, I'd shoot a squirrel or something like that. And it was really, you know, I'd shoot a rabbit and think, well, why am I meant to do this? And it was, it was all kind of oh, self-taught, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But, yeah, and so it's a little similar thing, really, those people that, and, and, you know, thank God I did meet him because I don't know how I would have ended up because I've I'd always had this passion for wildlife, birds, you know, the, the countryside around me and now in my job, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Throughout the UK and, and Europe. And, you know, I've got just outside behind that curtain is like five feeders and I've got young goldfinches coming to them. And I just, just can't help myself. It's that kind of passion. And I think like these National Trust guys, they must have ignited and helped you you know, um, you know, satisfy that, so to speak. And that takes you to the next level, doesn't it? Like me with the shotgun, like you with the shotgun. Then I was yeah, out yeah. with foxes. I applied for a 2-2. I had this little old Marlin underleaver like a cowboy's gun. Yeah. I shot millions of bullets through that. And I, I, I would say in those days I was a lot, I trained a lot more to shoot with a 2-2 off sticks on rabbits and stuff like that. Right, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, and, and, a few podcasts. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, like you say, it was definitely like the catalyst, and and you're almost just waiting for some sort of door to open. Yeah, you know, once it does, you can, you know, you kick it open the rest of the way, and you and you're there really, yeah. and then it's just keeping the momentum going because uh, it's probably quite easy to to drop out of this sort of lifestyle. Yeah, I think it's harder to get that door open and to find those people. Uh, yeah yeah definitely but a lot of that a lot of that comes with like trust yeah and and when when you're unfortunately when you're not in the the country sports world um it, it is seen it's quite a clandestine sort of secret you know Odd, odd little awesome. place, really, that you just you just sort Stalking, of glimpse. The deer stalking world, and the, everybody wants your ground. Everybody wants to stab you in the back. It's bloody horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so it's just gaining gaining the right people. People's You're a trust. Man who's meant with your friends, but anybody outside of that, I mean, it's, it's worse, <laughs> I think. But that's perhaps me as an old bloke. <laughs> but yeah, you know, possibly, yeah. yeah, back to the subject. You're lucky if you can. Find somebody he'll take you under the wing and give you that kind of you know um you know knowledge and, and you know it's um the, yeah it's just the foot in the door the craft i it? suppose it is isn't it, it you know yeah yeah knowing the countryside and all the things and how it all fits together um yeah I, 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 i've just been away this weekend and i downloaded the farm with um oh god blimey Oh, Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy on it, and up in the cut, and his ground's not far from ours. And it's okay, been, yeah, I've, yeah. I watched two or three of them, and um, and then I, I looked onto his uh, social media feed to see what reaction he was getting. And, like everybody's you know, raving about it. I think they're actually learning how difficult farming and how living in the countryside and actually making yeah, some yeah. money out of it. Um, really is you know what i mean I, I think it's great that he's putting it over his version of it but certainly for people to understand uh, you know crop rotation how you plant crops how you how weather impacts on everything you do and all that you know um i've gone off the tangent sorry but no that's fine no i, I haven't seen any of it but I, obviously we definitely need more 
more things like this out there, you know, more, more yeah. accessible. I, I, I think people are willing to show it. It helps. It's obviously him and he's got a huge platform to launch it on there, but he hasn't gone in there as an expert saying this is how you do it. He's literally got the, uh, the local land agent um, and a, a local farm contractor and, and all local people helping him. And they just think he's, they're just like, what? You know, think he's a complete idiot, but from it, he's kind of learning, but it is hilarious uh, in the errors he's making, but Right, yeah. I would I think year three he might even start to break even, but he's probably getting about ten million pounds for actually making it off Amazon. But um sure. the actual yeah. farm itself, oh goodness, he's he's making a few mistakes. Anyway, again, carry on. <laughs> uh where were we? Uh yeah, so yeah, National Trust, yeah, that, that like uh was the door opening for me, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and then literally there, I was doing uh, you know rabbit shooting with my two two air rifle um, and stuff like that. Um, it that was the enabler for me um, to then start meeting people, networking, and yeah. and whatnot. Um, as I say, like most people, apply for my shotgun certificate. Um, but then yeah, like, as I say, just just from work and career. Uh, choices and moving around it, it was very late um, like I say it was only a couple of years ago now that I've got my uh, rifle uh, certificate all sorted what did you what was your choice of rifle uh, so 308 good, um, good choice <laughs> and uh, I went for a browning actually yeah. uh, I went for a browning x-bolt um, with the thumb stock that they do uh, it's called an eclipse yeah um, uh, I was doing a lot of high high seat shooting at yep. the time. Um, pretty much as I uh, as I started, I, I started going out and, and helping just with some culling on the estate that I beat on. Yeah. Um, and it's exclusively high seat shooting from there. Yeah. Um, and it just felt uh, just the, the way that your wrist sits when you're holding your rifle in a high seat, it's yeah. just so much more comfortable with a thumb yeah. stock, at least yeah. for me, yeah. uh, the, just for the grip and stuff like that. Um, so uh, I, that was probably one of the driving factors of my rifle choice uh, was what was available in a thumb stock. I think that was a good choice. I started off with a brown and A-bolt about a oh, million yeah. years ago. Yeah, and it, I can remember buying it from Garland's and it came in a package. I used to help out at Garland's in those days. So I had, a, I had an account and the hours I did paid off what I did. And yeah. uh, I mean, this is a million years ago, but but I had a Browning A-Bolt, wooden stock, no, um, no um, sound mods in those days. And it came with a Swarovski scope and it came with a sling and a case and a Gerber, was it a Gerber? an old timer knife. And uh, so it came as a complete kit. And I think okay. it came with um, federal ammunition. I think you got four boxes of federal. And they put this kit together, guys, and that's what you you had. And I kind of had that and paid it off. But it was a 243 at the time. And I shot a 243 for probably about 10 years. And I blooming loved it. And I most of my shooting them uh, in the early days was foxes helping gamekeepers and on the ground that are kind of farms and that i knew and then um i started shooting muntjac in a few row in the cotswolds and then that went on from there but 
the, uh, the, the change to 308 came from a, a guy called Andy Patmore, who I think is a retired, well, I know he's retired, Forest Commission Ranger um, at Rockingham Forest. And I went out with him right. on some of his ground and he got this old BSA scout or whatever, you know, commission rifle or what it was. And, right. um, and he said, well, you don't want a 243. I said, why not? He said, you need a 308, kid. I said, 308? I said, it's a cannon. He said, yeah, he said, it's a cannon. He says, but he says, he says, um, it for shooting in woodland. He said, you know, uh, he said it's a bigger bullet. Um, yeah. It's not so fast, not so um, prone to um, deflection, uh, better bullet choice. If, you know, if you get a muntjac and uh, and there's a little, you know, you don't see a twig in front of it because it's in cover because that's where it lives. You know, it's um, it's a bit more accepting of that, you know, than a two, yeah. three. Yeah. And um, and I actually shot a muntjac with him with this um, with this. Um, with his 308 and then later on I shot him with my own 243 and the 308 it dropped it on the spot mm-hmm. and yeah. the 243 it ran into cover it took us 15 minutes to find it and I thought you know what yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so that's uh, I went from 243 to 308 and uh, I've been a, a big advocate yeah. of that ever since yeah, the, the first centerfire calibre I ever shot um, was a 270 oh. unmoderated yeah, uh, it was a lovely rifle. I can't remember the, the the make, but it was like a Stutzen full full stocked rifle. Um, so that was my only other experience of a centerfire before I shot 308. Um, and uh, I did my DSC one uh, over Jim Riley at Chippenham. Um, yeah. Really fantastic uh, layout he's got there for for doing the courses, and. Um, he he loves the 308 and and that's you know it's pretty much all they use there um and that's what we used because uh, at the time i didn't have my own rifle yeah. doing yeah. the dc one so i used the estate rifle which was a blazer in 308 and again i, I that, that's all i had to go by at the time so in yeah. terms of like yeah. the, the kick and and everything like that that was just i, I didn't know any different and um and even now it, it doesn't I don't think there is one. You know, it doesn't bother me. No, at all. Uh, when I was younger, and the only the only real calibers that were off the shelf were two four three or two seventy, and any of the rangers or the guys that I got to meet or in Scotland, they were, they were all either shooting two four threes or two seventies. No, again, no sound moderators in those days. Uh, yeah. Hence my permanent tinnitus in this year, but that's another story. Uh, and. And then the occasional 308, and then of course there was the blooming watershed of, you know, 6.5s, all the different calibers that came in. Oh, 2506 yeah. had, I think, 10 years of, you know, um, popular attention. Is it a creed more now? You know, there's such a broad selection of yeah. calibers. I, I just want to read ammunition and all that, but th- there wasn't yeah, that. It, it's partly as well driven from the fact that I couldn't afford. You know, or justify at least uh, having multiple rifles no. in different calibers. So I just wanted one, one solid round that would do that would cover everything that I would be doing. It's one of my, it's one of my m- most regularly asked questions, either with lads that are stalking, that are coming with us and use our estate rifles, and they're you know, like you were a few years ago, considering what you're going to use. Uh, or or PMs through social media, you know, you always push the 308 OMY and, you know, it's, I mean, it just suits me and the, and and the, 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 the environment that I, 
I use in, which is woodland stalking, um, you know, shots up to regularly shooting out to 150 meters, but certainly not the long shots, perhaps of like the Welsh hills for valleys or or up into Scotland or, you know, so it suits, just suits us. And that's what, you know, I, I ask them straight away, well, what's, what are you shooting? And generally it's, you know, lowland woodland stalking. And, and I think it's, yeah. me personally, um, I think it's a good round. Um, yeah, well, for around 100 to 150 metres, yeah. pretty much everything I've shot, I, you know, it drops on the spot, more or less. Like um, that robot the other night. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Just like that, yeah. That was a very enjoyable evening. Uh, let's tell the listeners. Yeah. Um, so I invited Mark to shoot his first robot, <clears throat> and he had had, all the, had, had other offers, but um, decided to take up mine. And uh, we, we finally got a date that suited us. And we went out. So what is it now? It's the end of June now. So it was probably a couple of mid, mid-June, wasn't it? And it was yeah, yeah, yeah. where we've had quite a bit of hot weather. And it's just when the, we happened to time it on the night that the weather was about to break. So we had this incredible humidity, didn't we? It was ridiculous. Yeah, it was very Everything hot. Went, yeah. Nothing moved. The book I was after is still there. Um, but we managed to find a little cool book on um, some stewardship in amongst the flowers, didn't we? And a really nice stalk. Yeah, yeah. And what was that incredible rifle you were using? Oh, the Merkel K5. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause. Oh, I love that rifle. I am so biased. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a lovely little rifle. And oh. like, as, as you say, that, that was my actually my first Roebuck. Yeah. Um, just, just out of happenstance that... Uh, most of my shooting ground around here, the row aren't in high numbers. No. Um, so they tend, well, the good places at least tend to just leave them be. Um, yeah. Obviously, like, there's some local populations where they do need hammering back. Um, but but for me, there just wasn't really the opportunity. Um, um, so the, there's been many that have been in my crosshairs that I've just watched, which has been lovely. Um, what have you got in it local to you? You've got fallow and, and lots of munchak, haven't you? Yeah, really good muntjac population. Yeah. Um, a lot that's, of fallow. That's why the um, road here aren't establishing so quickly. You know what I mean? I've, yeah, I've, yeah, possibly. Yeah, different. it's just localized little pockets. Um, yeah, and there's no, there's, there doesn't really seem to be many good roebuck around here. Like the genetics aren't very good at all. Um, but yeah, and other than that, there's like local localized populations of red. Obviously, we're not we're not far from uh, Thetford Forest sort yeah. of area. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously all around Euston Estate. You know they're, they're they're famous for their red deer. Yeah, um, and so that the, they come down and they touch. You know the, they're mainly north of the A14. Yeah, uh, line from from where I am here, just just south of there. But um, yeah. yeah, so I there's not there's really a, good populations of roe. I I know there's a good popular population of roe in that direction and in Thetford. But that was where um, year, years ago they did the study in Kings Forest there on the Munchak. And that's where a lot of the information came from on that, if you know that. But they, a lot, right. they, like a 10 year, Norma Chapman uh, did a, a, a like a 10 year study. Norma Chapman and others um, did, a, did, a, did a 10 year study. So that would have been the 80s and into the 90s. And I think it was in the early noughties, they had like a Munchak symposium over there that I went over to. Uh, and it was all English Nature Forestry Commission uh, were the main players in it, and um, they were already saying, you know, you've got to shoot this species on site. This is mm. twenty years ago. You know, it's uh, 
it, it, it's it's getting um, distribution is just incredibly fast. It was assisted by others, of course. You know, everybody was catching them and shifting them and moving them and keeping mates, right. you know, lending them to the mates in another county. But yeah, you yeah. just see how the the the, um, the 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 distribution map, the holes were filling up, muntjac were appearing everywhere. And you know, twenty years ago, we didn't have we had a, the, an occasional muntjac in Staffordshire. But now right. here, and you know, you see them knocked down on the roads. There's not really such a population that you could stalk them like you could perhaps Oxfordshire, the Cotswolds, and stuff like that. It's, you know, they're not a maximum, okay. but they're definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know. And, um, but it's a long story to get to where you were. Your roe deer population, if you've got um, a high munt population um, or, and fallow as well in the background, it's, it's a tough yeah. for them. And they, they do well in the summer when they can, you know, the, the, the roe likes to be out in the fields um, and, and they can, you know, can, they can live off what's out there, all the uh, woodland edge and the browse out there. But once it comes back to the wood in the winter and they're competing against, you know, good populations of fallow and a high density, yeah, yeah. yeah it just doesn't, they, they, they kind of just don't stop and they don't thrive. And I, I've had that on, you know, numerous pieces of ground where, but the row that do and and do get away haven't got the competition of big populations of row or the pressure sure. of row books or territory. Yeah, yeah. And they do, you know, we've shot some real good books off ground where there isn't high populations. The Chilterns, for one, is um, you know, they really struggle to establish in the Chilterns. And we we used to leave our row um unless they were you know in areas where there were that they couldn't stop like plantations and stuff like that. But, um, but the books that did get to maturity, you know, six years plus were absolute stonkers because they got the minerals in the ground. You know what I mean? It, and yeah, yeah. I mean, they were getting, there was good food source that they could get, but mainly they hadn't got that competition from other row books that was causing them the stress during the, you know, um, yeah, sure. the rant growth. But, uh, but anyway, I'm waffling on. Um, so <laughs> yes, so Munt Jack is generally what you've been shooting. Yeah, yeah, mostly Munjack, yeah. Yeah, really good populations around here. Obviously, they're just prolific. So, um, yeah, they're, they're a staple. It's almost guaranteed. It's, it's one of my favourite species. I know I've said that. Absolutely, many yeah, times. yeah. I think I say it on every podcast. It's, it's such a curious little animal. And um, so, you know, with a Munty, if, if you see a row out in a bit of cover, you can stalk them like we did the other night and you you get the wind right and you keep your head down and move and you can generally get into a position to take a shot you know, yeah in the munchak you might see him a fleeting moment and think you know where he's going and it's just like the, the yeah yeah the munchak burrow you know what i mean it's like where's yeah that? they do they do just appear and disappear yeah it's, totally it's, yeah it's it's an incredible species and um it gets a lot of stick as our alien invader but i, I think it's provided um, British woodland stalkers with, you know, sport where the props wouldn't have sport, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah, definitely, yeah. You've only got to see the interest on social media over it, haven't you? You know what I mean? There's there's um, Facebook pages and, and that, and you see that when people put up, you know, stuff, the, the, the response it gets. And uh, yeah. long may it continue, but we've just got to remember to keep shooting as many does as we can more than the books you know and it, yeah that's it a lot of the time you know having to shoot heavily pregnant does um especially for people who um 
aren't perhaps hardcore stalkers. They will perhaps leave them and think, oh, let's let the numbers build up. But that's, you know, you've got to keep on top of them. You really have. Yeah, and they are very sweet-looking deer yeah. as well. The, the little... deer, aren't they? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, yeah enjoy, they did. did you enjoy my Bresciola? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. Oh, it's, they're buggers to skin, aren't they? But once you get them off, the, the, the meat of Mudrak is... Uh, is is one of the best ones. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is definitely very good. Yeah. Well, we because I mean, we've done a call this year because we haven't really had that many clients out. We've done it ourselves, you know. So a lot of the carcasses, uh, and again, every bloody podcast I seem to go back to this. The the price for venison um, is is not not that good. So we've, you know, we've used a lot of the muntjac ourselves. So yeah, um, I've got three lads, so there's plenty to share out. But um, we've had to be a little bit more. Um, adventurous in what we do with it and I kind of yeah, yeah definitely I'm yeah in this one to chef pascal's recipe and uh, well yeah. I like he's giving me gabs again <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's definitely like a catalyst for like trying out new things though like having a having a surplus of stuff yeah yeah trying out your jerkies and your bresciolas and whatnot yeah well I thought that well I'm looking at it here um I, I bought this dehydrator I think it was the best £130 I ever spent, but I can't think it's making yeah. me ill. <laughs> I'm about to give it away and leave off it a bit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I mean, at the moment, we're obviously not shooting any much yet, but we've, uh, we, we always put loads in the freezer for over the summer and then um, get it on the old barbecue. Um, Tom, my eldest lad, um, minces all the shoulders up. And we actually had a lasagna last night that was... Um, yeah, yeah. I think it may have actually been right that, but we have definitely got Munjack mints in the freezer. Yeah, it's exclusively all we eat now instead of instead of beef, any sort of beef mints. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's all venison now. So I know. Well, it's can't beat it. Fast. It just doesn't have that. It doesn't have that greasiness. No. To it. That, that's that's a two-edged sword, isn't it? Because if you're kind of going to make burgers, you have to put a bit more fat into it, you know, or sausages or stuff like that. Cause it is, it's that lean. It's blooming, you know, it's too lean. In, in some ways you have to bring some, bring some fat back into it to get it to bind and stuff like that. Don't you? But, yeah, it can be. Yeah. It's a tricky one, but. Hey. Yeah. Well, Mark, I've really enjoyed our chat. It's been. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, as I, as I said to you on the phone the other day, when I asked you if you'd do this, uh, we'll see you in a few more weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. We weren't that successful. Well, we got a cool book, which is uh, we got your first book, but um, he was um, only a little spiker. Um, and Dif- I would difficult, like, would like difficult to get conditions. <laughs> Sorry, difficult conditions. <laughs> Humid conditions. Um, yeah. Get you back in a few weeks um, when the rut kicks off. Uh, I do look forward to that time of the year and yeah. uh, try and give you a bit of a. You know, the roadbook rut experience. Um, we'll just have to sync diaries on that one. But um, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Try, try and get you uh, something that you can hang on the wall and not just make a, uh, a knife handle out of. <laughs> Mark, be great. it's been, as ever, wonderful to talk to. Uh, oh, thank I wish you. you all the best with your business. It's great to see somebody um, doing something they love and, um, and doing such a great job of it. For anybody that's listening uh, who hasn't actually seen Mark's knives, are you at the game fair, Mark? You've gone frozen. Where have you gone to? Hello, hello. Please come back, Mark. Hello, hello. Well, it looks like he's he's disappeared. 
But anyway, um, Mark has got um, a really good website where you can see his knives. And um, if you want to show any interest, drop him a message on his website. But thanks again to everybody for listening. Um, I'm going to try and get old to Mark again. Uh, Thanks ever so much, Mark, even though you can't hear me. And um, we'll see you on another podcast on another day.